Welcome to episode 8 of the Meditation Freedom Podcast. Where meditation meets daily life, this is the Meditation Freedom Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Meditation Freedom Podcast. And if you're totally new to this podcast, then let me tell you briefly what this is all about. Basically, what I do is I interview meditation practitioners and meditation teachers of various traditions, and I try to find out why they started practicing, you know, what event or what type of, of thing that happened in their lives that made them realize, I need to practice. I talk about how they practice, what kind of practice they have, and so then I try to figure out how it's changed their lives, how it's transformed their lives and their relationships with everything they come in touch with and where their meditation or their meditation practice meets their daily lives, how it's integrated in their daily lives. And today's interview is going to be with John Hancock. He's someone I've known through an organization which I joined called the Friends of Compassion. And his ideas and mine are similar in the sense that we're looking for ways to see what is, what we have in common as a human species as opposed to what divides us and what makes us distinct. You know, not saying that what makes us distinct is shouldn't be celebrated. It's just that it seems to be, it's important to emphasize what we have in common as well. Now, as you'll hear during the interview that his he started this particular group, and he did it based on you know, a couple of ideas, including the Charter of Compassion, but it was also part of an effort with a nun up in Shravasta Abbey to bring the Dalai Lama to the Northwest. And so this group kind of grew out of that, and it was a way to bring all these various communities and organizations together and talk about compassion and how to apply that into organizations and politics and so forth and people's personal lives. So John's personal spiritual practice is walking a labyrinth. And so that's kind of one of the things we'll be talking about during this interview. And he also brings in some of the other things he's learned from other religions such as Buddhism. Now, just a little bit about John himself. He came to the Northwest around 1999 as the executive director of the Spokane Symphony. In the past, he was a French horn player as well as a musician. And currently, he does consulting work with his own company, Deep Creek Consulting, and doing some grant writing and institutional development for nonprofits. And one of the things he did with his group, the Friends of Compassion, is to develop an understanding of what the word compassion really means and where it's found in all the various faiths, philosophies, and laws, as well as public policies. So he wasn't as much into comparing the doctrines. And the second one is to find out which organizations are already acting compassionately. So he found various groups to meet with in different locations so that we could actually see what was being done by that particular organization or group to bring compassion into their daily lives. So one example of an activity we did was go to a homeless shelter and spend the night there. And that's where we learn what it's like to be homeless and ostracized and having to walk through alleys so we don't get yelled at. Quite an experience and a good way to learn compassion 
for one another. I wrote a blog post about that a while back, and if you're interested, you can follow up with that and check it out. I'll put a link to that post in the show notes. I recorded this in Spokane, Washington. Here's the interview with John Hancock. One of the first questions I like to ask is, how did you get into a spiritual practice, and, and what practice did you did appeal to you? My father was a Methodist minister in small-town Iowa, so I grew up with with that religious tradition, which is one of the most liberal of the brands of Protestant Protestant life, both in England and in the United States. And he was kind of a small-town, liberal, progressive guy in a very conservative part of the world. And he taught um, that tolerance is great, but it's not enough. We're, we're called to go beyond tolerance into really an embrace and a welcoming. That's not just because it's a good idea, but because it's that's what our heart is drawn to, and that's what Jesus taught. And I, I gave up that Protestant church in my 30s because I was tired of hearing about sin every week. I thought there's got to be a more positive message than helping me understand how sinful I am. I tried for years to read Buddhism, and it just seemed uh, so foreign and beyond my own culture that it was hard for me to get it. And I didn't know any Buddhists. But finally, a, a Dalai Lama book called Ethics for a New Millennium right. jumped off the shelf towards me in a bookstore. Really. And because I had studied ethics, it seemed, to, seemed like a common ground to make between Buddhism and, and my own thought life. And uh, that was a, a tremendous revelation to me about uh, the concept of universal compassion and about compassion as a, a human instinct. We've all been misled by Darwin, I think, in, in the interpretation of others about uh, the world of competition and the survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Because Darwin actually wrote more about cooperation than he wrote about competition. And I understand that to say now that, that competition is great for individuals, but it doesn't help groups and societies survive nearly, in nearly as strong a way. So those are the two strands of sort of personal uh, discovery and endeavor for me now, which looks like the, the seeking the commonality that we all have with each other. And mm -hmm. all the ideas that we're all one are, are part of personal exploration and sometimes revelation to me. Mm -hmm. So my, my spirit life is about um, coming to grips with the fact that, yes, I'm distinctive, but on the other hand, I'm I'm with other people in a way that's that's coordinated, linked up. It's a shared self, and not just an individual personal self. Yeah. And I, I when I go to that place, not of feeling alone, but of feeling oneness with other people, with the animals, with the physical world, with the universe. The revelations are tremendously uh, affirming and calming in, in my own self. And that's the antidote to the stress of life as a citizen, life as a parent, life as a member of the community. So that's where I go in my, in my meditation and my seeking for answers is into the universal. 
And so one of the tools you use for that meditation is the labyrinth, right? That's right. And, and what brought you to that particular? Well, I, I was always fascinated in the design sense of the spiral in seashells, in labyrinth, in jewelry, in ancient art. And the labyrinth is just a, a more complicated version of a spiral that is upward and outward and onward and bigger from a small a small space. And the, the labyrinth as found in ancient art really from all over the world seemed like a universal symbol that came from some mystical, magical, maybe even outer space kind of place, but the origin of it hasn't ever been really explained. But um, suddenly at a holistic health fair there was a seminar presented by a woman who talked about the labyrinth as a spiritual practice. And she had a, a fold-up canvas painted labyrinth mm -hmm. that she would spread on the floor with candles around the edge and then do, do a little talk about the significance of the labyrinth and then uh, led us on a group labyrinth walk, maybe 20 people in the room, and then had a little debrief about, you know, did you feel anything? During the labyrinth walk, so suddenly it was a very it was a very personalized um, spiritual journey that had been explained to me by a person who was highly trained and experienced in what the labyrinth was. And part of her talk was that that the labyrinth had come to the United States as a practice from from and by women in the Catholic Church in the early 90s and in the Episcopalian Church. And in San Francisco, there was a new Episcopal cathedral called Grace, which was built, um, I think, in the 1980s, which had a big labyrinth engraved in the floor, a mosaic in the floor of the cathedral for this spiritual practice. And then outside on the lawn, there was a labyrinth twice as big that was available to the public. So this woman had been there to, to get training in, in that sort of group facilitation of labyrinth meditation and uh, lived in Spokane at the time. So suddenly it was it was available to me and so I said well could could a person build a labyrinth? Mm -hmm. And she said oh yeah there's a book. So she sent me home with the book and I had uh, known of two labyrinths in Spokane. One was one that was built in the 1930s on the hill behind our own Episcopal, Episcopal Cathedral in Spokane and the other was a modern Catholic uh, labyrinth made out of bricks on the hillside uh, above a little town called Suncrest where a, a Catholic community was uh, being formed and the first thing they did was not build a church but to build a labyrinth. Hmm. So I was pointed towards that place and so that was really my first first outdoor labyrinth walk. So with, with Eloa's uh, instruction and the aid of a friend of mine we found a place on our own land in the country mm -hmm. in which the, the energy seemed right to, to make a labyrinth. And it was sort of flat, not totally flat because it's just a natural place in the forest on the edge of, edge of the meadow near the creek. And then I borrowed a, a thousand, a, a book of history of a labyrinth, sort of a very scientific National Geographic kind of book that had 
drawings or photos or images of about a thousand different labyrinths. And they're not all alike. There are many different, different variations on the design. What is the practice to do that? How does it start and where do you go? And... Well, I, I have difficulty in my sitting meditation practice with what's been called monkey brain, mm -hmm. which it's hard for me to get down to, to nothingness and stillness and to shut off all the other 50 things to think about mm -hmm. when I sit. But when I walk, it's easier for me. So it's a walking meditation. It's a walking meditation in, a, in the labyrinth design. And uh, that's better for me because I can focus some, somehow the physicality of walking gets me focused in myself and away from all the other thoughts. Eat more easily than, mm -hmm. than when I'm just sitting. And so you're, you're feeling that sense of stillness as you walk into the circle, or is it the other way around, from the center to the out? Well, the, the, the practice in a, in a labyrinth, the design, is a one, is a one path. So the, the winding path that you go into the labyrinth is backwards when you come out. So in the practice, the standard practice, there's sort of three ways to think about this. The, the, the path into the labyrinth is sort of an exploration or a return to, to a place you've been before or a going into the cavern or into the unknown. And the center of the labyrinth then is the, the spirit energy, the, the focus of the light or the revelation or the oneness. And so it's a stay in the center with the expectation of inspiration or energy. And then the return is then the, the ability to take that energy or that enlightenment back into the exterior life. To reintegrate that? Or to keep it with you as you return you. to, to uh, normalcy or return to the next chapter of your life. You've gotten something on the journey that stays with you. So that's, it's, it's the, the entry or the exploration, it's the receiving, and then it's the coming out. And, and that was sort of the link to, the, to being reborn in the religious tradition or cleansed as a result of your trip into the labyrinth. And in the Middle Ages, uh, in Europe, um, major Catholic cathedrals often had labyrinth in the floor. And the Chartres Cathedral, for instance, is one of the most famous ones and the most well-preserved Mm -hmm. labyrinths. And the practice, the, the, the religious belief then was that the, all the Catholics were called also to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. It wasn't just the, the Muslims who were called to make Hajj, but it was medieval Christians who, who could get something uh, much bigger by an actual return to follow the steps of Jesus. But because it wasn't safe and it wasn't practical for ordinary people to do that, they could do it in a symbolic way by following the steps of Jesus in the labyrinth mm -hmm. and to get some of that spiritual revelation that was about the path to the Holy Land. And the, sometimes the, the, the monks, or the, the higher level uh, observants, would do that on their knees in the labyrinth. And sometimes even there was a prostration in between each step of the labyrinth. Mm which intensified the whole experience. Mm -hmm. So pilgrims would come from far and wide to, to do that mystical journey on a labyrinth in a big cathedral. Mm -hmm. 
And is this something you practice, you know, every other day or once a week or? It's not daily, but it's frequent. And it seems like there are times in my life where the need is greater or mm -hmm. the, the inspiration is greater. Like t during it's times like, of difficulties? Maybe? Yeah. It's like when, I, when I'm stuck. I can sometimes find, find an idea on a labyrinth meditation that has escaped me otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also a link into the energy of the land. It's a, it's a remote, mostly silent in the forest place where I'm not distracted or interrupted by uh, the thoughts of, of normal life in town or in my house. And the energy of the land is important in a way. Uh, my friend Francesca helped me with the layout. There's a, a major path that goes by, which was a logging road a generation ago. And the labyrinth is about 50 feet across and sits right next to this path. So the simplest, simplest, most obvious way would just to, to be an entrance right off the path. So the first step into the labyrinth is right on the path. But it seemed to make it too open or vulnerable. So the entrance needed to be in some other place. The American Indians usually had the entrance into their sacred places, like the medicine wheel, which has something in common with the labyrinth in the east. And the, their teepees, that is their dwellings, always had the entrance on the east. But that seemed like sort of an artificial way to do it. So we just walked around on the land to figure out where the energy felt right. Mm -hmm. And picked a place then where you have to step off the path uh, to go in. And then when we got the compass out, we figured out that um, that entrance, which we had just picked in an energetic way, is exactly the same as the entrance to Stonehenge. Hmm. That is where the sun rises on the summer solstice. Points right into the center of the of hmm. the labyrinth. And it was just selected in an energetic way rather than by using a compass. Hmm. So we didn't know that until some months later that that's, that's what we had selected. Hmm. So that seems like a magical thing to me. Did you also find that it, it helps you with creativity? Is it like a, a creative inspiration as well? Well, it's as, as a problem-solving, what should happen next, and what should it be like, and how do you get started, and what does it look like, is, is one of the, the kinds of revelation that I've always depended on for the next steps in life. The labyrinth meditation is also, can also be a group activity. And as such, it often is used uh, as an opening activity for a group of people who don't know each other, who are being invited into groupiness in a gathering, uh, either, either for a, you know, an hour-long worship service or a weekend of group reflection and activity. So when a group of people walk the labyrinth together, it's usually in silence. And in that silence, of course, the, the revelation is, is even more uh, strong, I believe, and because the path out is the same as the path in, two people will come into confrontation. One person who's entering and another person who's leaving. Mm. And there are no rules about or etiquette about what to do. So people who may not know each other, can one can step off the path to let the other one pass. Or sometimes they both step off the path and then they're sort of both giving way because there isn't any in, in or out is more important. Sometimes 
there's an embrace that people do. Sometimes there's, there's a look up and an eye link, and other times it's just the aversion of the eyes because I'm in my own private space. Mm. And so it happens differently for different people, but without any, without any rules. Yeah, but no bumping. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it looks like a dance because the, the ten concentric circles of, of our labyrinth mean that there are people passing near and far in different directions and, and uh, it's, a, it's a, an indiscernible pattern. You can't stand on the edge and see obviously where you go next because of the turns and the backtracks. And so at some points it, it seems like everybody's on that side of the labyrinth mm -hmm. and they're all going in the same direction and then suddenly in an instant it switches and people are over here and instead of going the same direction they all seem to be in opposition. Mm. So it's, it's a wonderful dance and one of, the, one of the explanations about the labyrinth from Greek times is that the labyrinth was simply an outline of a particular kind of dance they were worried about the young people forgetting how to do so they drew the pattern on the floor. Mm of a dance that had been traditional, but you know, as the old people died, the tradition waned. So the, the pattern of the labyrinth was a, was a dance moves explanation. And then there was the minotaur in the, in the labyrinth, which was a test of the young Perseus to see whether he was brave enough to get to marry the, the king's daughter. And so she gave him a spool of thread to unravel as he went into the labyrinth so he would know how to make his way out. So that's sort of a Hansel and Gretel story about the, hmm. about the breadcrumbs on the path. Mm -hmm. So this, this design really occurs in, in lots of myths and stories. How have you found this practice to be affecting your day-to-day -day life and the reintegration of that into your regular life? It's about centering. It's about how to give up worry on the surface about things that are really not the deepest things to be concerned about. And the, it helps to reassure me that I'm okay, that inspiration is available to me if I slow down and ask, and that nature is in support of what I do and what we do when we take the time to, to receive the energy which is available. And has that changed your relationship with other people and, you know, maybe even people that are considered enemy in uh, superficial terms? You know, has that just changed your relationship to the world of phenomena? Well, it's, it's a neat question. My wife Jane picked this spot in the country for us because she perceived the, the great spiritual energy that was there before us. And we understand that this, this low place in the canyon was a place where the Spokane Indians had wintered because there was water and seclusion and uh, respite from the wind in, in this low place. Mm -hmm. So Jane perceived that. Other Indians who have come have confirmed that we're, we're walking on the bones of our ancestors when you, when you visit our place. Now that may be true in all of Spokane because the, the Spokane Indians were the the earliest civilization that we know of here. But most of the people in this canyon are not there for that reason. They're there because it's kind of a secluded, secluded place to get out of town and, and uh, 
there are many horse, horse farms nearby. So we've all picked, we, we neighbors have all picked this place to live for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But here we are. And real estate doesn't change hands very, very often in our neighborhood. So there are many long-term residents there who are expecting to be here for a long time, but with all different practices. Yeah. And uh, we're practicing community in a very uh, overt way of how to get to know these people, how to learn the things that we have in common, and how to not get distracted by the things that we could argue about if we wanted to. Right. But we, we don't want to. So we have social gatherings often at our place that are specific to neighbors. And we help each other as much as we can in, in ways that are about communications and, and tools and trips to town and babysitting and, and dog care and all, all those sorts of things. Uh, and there, many of them are tolerant and curious about you know, our peculiarities mm-hmm. as we are with them. So it feels like a, an opportunity to build community. Some of them know about this this labyrinth walk. Some have done it. Others are not interested or not aware, or it's not their practice. So we're not evangelizing about labyrinth right. meditation. We're just doing it. Now, now speaking about building community, you started a uh, Friends of Compassion, and what was your inspiration to bring together, you know, people from many walks of life and many religions and I was inspired by uh, a visit to see the Dalai Lama in Seattle about nearly 10 years ago now. And uh, then there was a chance encounter at my Rotary Club with a Buddhist nun who gave a talk about how the Eightfold Path of Buddhism is really the same ideas as the the fourfold test of Rotarians. That is, uh, be kind, be generous, be fair, do good in the world, and give of yourself. And in the company of Rotarians, it was an astonishing thing to see their response to her message. Because this was a person on the outside with not much in common with conservative business capitalists. But on the inside, the message was the same. And it was an inspiration to me. And she said in her talk, wouldn't it be great if we could get the Dalai Lama to come to Spokane because we've got this new place on the mountain and we'd love to get his blessing, and if he was in Spokane, we'd want a whole lot of people to see him. So several different strands of interest to me just came together in that idea. So we worked together, um, that is the Rotarians and the Buddhists, for six months to make, to propose a project that we hoped would get the Dalai Lama's interest and that we, he would actually come and visit us in Spokane. And unfortunately, he said no, which was discouraging to me as a Rotarian salesman, because I, you know, in my career has been uh, focused on making making good things happen. But the, many of the people that I had met in the design of this project said, well, we can talk about compassion in Spokane, whether the Dalai Lama ever comes here or not. Right. And this basic question of can institutions be compassionate or can only individuals be compassionate was fascinating to me. And so it was really the launch of this discussion group called the Friends of Compassion. To, to talk about compassion not just as a, as a personal spiritual path, but as a way of changing community behavior mm-hmm. and of solving community problems by getting together in a compassionate way, rather than just following laws and policies and economics. But what does compassion have to offer that some of these other isms uh, haven't, haven't succeeded at? So it, it, was a, it was sort of an interfaith 
um, discovery group that was distinctive because we're, we were seeking the commonalities among right. all these religions and practices and not getting hung up on the distinctions right. among them. Right. And that's where we as humans are all together, is in the commonalities of the practices of the religions. And the discovery in the scriptures, for instance, and in the wise teachings, that this admonition to be kind yeah. and to be selfless must be human because we all have it. They all have it. And all the prophets touch on it. Right. So I'm tremendously inspired by that commonality, that idea that there, in us humans there's that spark or that instinct to be kind right. and generous with each other. There has been a tendency to emphasize the individualism and the differentiation at the expense of the oneness and the commonalities. And so it's in a way it's it's a way to rebalance that so that there's a you know a celebration of the individual differences but then also a a balance with that constant reminder that we are one group. It's more harmonizing to to balance those two instead of emphasizing one. That's a great way to say it and and that's what it feels like to me. And if I, if I open my heart and my mind, I can find opportunities to practice that every day, both with people that I know and people that I just meet in the daily flow of life. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a confirmation of, of all that I believe is good about people and that all of these different religions and practices have something to offer. And they all spring from a culture of sincere, inspired prophets to their own people. But because we, we people are different in societies and cultures all around the world, we each need to find our own understanding of how that manifests in our own culture. So the absolutism that, that this prophet was the only true one, or this God is the only one that there is, or that there's no God, uh, are right for those people who practice that. But we can all be right when we find that universal explanation of the simplicity of how we're all together and how we're all the same. Right. So you can, you can identify a, a person's culture or his um, team by what, what clothing he wears or the, you know, the team ball cap. But when you see a person being kind to another, it all looks the same. Yeah. And there's, no, there's no trademark on that. There's no, there's no sectarian practice. And do you see this going new direction? Well, one of the things that I discovered um, in my new friendship with Buddhists is that it's, it's not often a community sort of political citizenship participation in the broader world. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more of an inner specialized um, individual or small group activity of, of learning and practice and ritual. But in my personal and, and family heritage, beyond that, then, is there's the community call to, to an activist life as a citizen, mm -hmm. in addition to just the, the inner life of, of uh, worship. And that balance has been uh, talked about by philosophers of all sorts all the way back to the Renaissance, of the, the inner and the outer. And you could say the breathing in and the breathing out. So this, this Friends of Compassion was a wonderful discussion group, but there was always a little impatience 
on my part to say, well, what are we going to do about this? And how do we get on to some activities in this group? Because the third, the third goal of the group was, what are the problems in Spokane in general for which compassionate solutions haven't yet been tried? And so as an activist political group, uh, it didn't seem to fit many of the people that, that were the, the fundamental leadership group. And so, so now I'm, I'm spending a little more time as a political activist, where next week there's a, an election in Spokane, and one of, the, one of the philosophical choices that we have is um, a, a smart justice campaign which will change the justice system from being almost all retributive, that is the punishment of right. wrongdoers, into the question of what went wrong in the lives of these uh, people accused of crimes, and how can we, we help them solve their problems and not just punish them in the way that the law requires. So it's, it's really is a very clear uh, alternative in this election between business in the justice system as usual and this more compassionate way of how do we help people, not just punish them. And so I'm an advocate for the compassionate side of that election. But the, the Friends of Compassion will continue to be together in a, a blog that's being established to continue the exploration of these questions, maybe for a far broader audience than just we've able to have once, one Wednesday night a month in Spokane. And to, to tie the philosophical investigation a little closer to public affairs and public events and many other organizations working alongside us on this search for compassionate practice. So that'll happen next. I'm not, I'm not really a, a modern internet linked up kind of guy, but so this is a new, new opportunity for me to, to actually find a broader potential audience for this work and to help compassionate people far beyond Spokane to link up in this way. What would be some of the things you would do to change that system, that retributive system, prison industrial complex? Well, I think there, there are people in poverty who are simply uh, the victim of circumstances that too, seem too large for them to make much of a change in. And desperate people do desperate things. So this, this issue of poverty is a big one, but it's a, it's a huge one in the justice system of a, of a person who is, has been jailed because the fines for his previous misdeeds simply pile up and then there's interest and then there's more fines and penalties and there's no way to get out of it. And so that, that person is, is desperate. And so there's a specialized court way that really uh, identifies what the economic factors are that will help this person break the cycle of debt and punishment and, and criminality. And this is not just a, a concept of compassionate people, but it's actually been tested in cities around the country and they're, they're good outcomes right. of this specialized court. And then a specialized court for people with, whose license, driving licenses have been revoked. And then they're jailed because they're driving, but they have to drive to get to work. Right. If they can't get to work, they can't pay the fine. And so a specialized court that's about just about driver's license revocation can actually look at the circumstances of this person and and make the balance how is how is society harmed if this person drives or is the driving actually of what this person and his family needs to break this this bad news bad behavior cycle and there's a veterans court in Spokane that's entirely staffed with with lawyers and attorneys and and uh, judges who themselves are veterans 
and they know there are some special commonalities among these veterans who for a while did a great job of following the rules and then something went wrong. So these veterans seem to be the best kind of people to get them back on a positive track and to spend enough time with this kind of people to make the links that allow them to overcome some of their own problems. So it's, it's just a specialized justice system that does, does a far better job of discerning the problems. And as a result, it's a way cheaper form of justice than having people in jail. Right, and that's a way to, to rally both the conservative and the, uh, the left together because the outcome is less financial drag on the... Yeah, that's right. And, and these people who have been helped are far less likely to reoffend re from desperation than they were if they had just been punished. So it's a, it's a way of making a far better civilization here in Spokane by actually helping people. And that sounds like compassion to me. Right, and then if people want to learn more about your spiritual practice, where how would they find out more about that? Well, I think that's that's a, a link through the same, the same website. I, I, I consider myself just a practitioner. Not not a wise teacher, and, and I don't I don't have a group. I just do it, and it's fun when when people have curiosity about that and come a little closer. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate. It. We all need each other in the world. Thank you so much for listening to this interview with John Hancock, and I hope you found something interesting. And if you would like to find out more about John Hancock, you can go to the show notes at meditationfreedom.com slash zero zero eight. Feel free to leave a note and leave a comment. You can do that right at the bottom of the show notes. And until next time, have a great rest of the day or evening or week, wherever you are. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us on the Meditation Freedom Podcast, where meditation meets daily life.